0: Well, we're back talking about spousal support. This has been quite the journey. I want to once again thank our special guest uh, speakers today, Jason Eisenberg and the FISA Nazarelli. We're here to continue our discussion about spousal support. It would be helpful if you've listened to our first and second episodes on this topic, it'll give you some background information with respect to our discussion today. Also, take a look at our show notes included with these podcasts. They're going to help you follow along with the various scenarios that we've been uh, providing and discussing throughout all three episodes. So, let's make a start. We're going to talk about income and financial statements. Briefly, this could be an entire podcast on its own, but I think it's important we talk about it with respect to spousal support for a number of reasons. The case scenario we've discussed today I'm assuming the person is a line 150 income earner, $100,000 is the income for the payer, and there's no dispute. I'm also assuming the recipient can generate or is generating $25,000 in income, Mm -hmm. and there's no dispute with respect to that. Now let's move into issues where, let's say, and we see this a lot, small business owners are um, people own companies. Oftentimes can write off expenses legitimately for CRA, Mm -hmm. Canada Revenue Agency. A lot of personal elements to these expenses. And then we look at, okay, well, let's add some of these expenses back in Mm -hmm. when we're talking about spousal support. And sometimes the lawyers use language called imputing income. That could be done to the payor. Or if the recipient is uh, underemployed, let's say they have a skill set, they're a renowned salesperson or highly educated and they're saying I can only make fifteen or ten thousand dollars I think there's an expectation that income can be imputed to the recipient so what are we looking at here Jason? What should people think about in terms of income in relation to support orders?
1: Well those are factors, I mean they're variables that makes every case different but if you think someone is saying they earn one number, but they earn a different number, that's going to have an effect. Uh, In the non-child support formula, we're talking about paying a percentage of the differences. So if you can make that gap larger, you could receive more money. You make it smaller, you pay less money. In the with child support formula, we're talking about sharing money. So if you think someone makes more, you're making the pie larger to share or think they earn less, it's making the pie smaller to share. So um, you you have motivation to play with these numbers if you think you can prove it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if someone does have a business, if someone is writing off expenses, if someone's filed their taxes and Revenue Canada's never made an issue of it, that's not the standard we're looking at. The family court, if we go there, has a right to technically look at what you receive um, in, in, in revenue from your business and what you're writing off in expenses and go, no, I don't believe this. It's not legitimate. So does revenue Canada. It's just that there's, there's millions of us filing taxes. They don't catch up to us every year. But family court, if you want them to catch up to you, they're going to catch up mm-hmm. to you and take a look. Um, right. So you need to make sure that um, you consider whether the numbers that are being presented are legitimate or not.
2: I, I just want to add to that. So there are clients that come in where they're, uh, they're support payers and they, and they say, well, I'll just quit my job. Yes. and then they can't come we after me, so often, right? I'll just quit yeah. my job. Well, she's, show, not gonna get, she's not going to get She's yeah. not going to get a cent. And, and what you have to understand is that if you're capable of earning that income, like the judges are going to look at, um, you know, if you made $100,000 and you quit your job and now you're making zero, they're going to impute you to $100,000 because you're capable of earning that $100,000. So quitting your job is not going to get you off of spousal support payments.
0: We hear spouses sometimes believe that. Yes. You know, and they've made some ridiculous offer in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll come into the office and they feel guilty when you say, this is what you're entitled to receive in support. Mm-hmm. Without understanding that when we walk them through their budget mm-hmm. and the expenses of raising a child in Ontario, that this is, the, the support number is probably fairly close to what their budget is. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that's a great tip. Mm-hmm. In, in that same vein, people sometimes say, well, I could lose my job tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Why should I pay this number at all? Going back to material change, that'll be a material change. That's when you raise those issues. A lot of people want to raise that issue at the time where they look at the number and go, I can't afford that. And if I lose my job tomorrow, I definitely can't afford it. I'm like, that's not relevant now. We're dealing with what you have now, not
0: what you will do. We have executives as clients who sometimes will receive a $50,000 or $100,000 bonus, get divorced. Uh, and then uh, the issue is okay well should I pay based on my bonus from last year or was that a Mm one-off you know I'm not going to earn that bonus this year but now I'm paying support based on that Mm -hmm. what are some of the ways Jason we can deal with that even on a temporary basis
1: well I should say that the children will always get your best so that's bonus is part of child support whether you like it or not that's not what we're talking about today but (laughs) I think you know the one-time bonus uh, you've got to look at that I mean Sometimes it's easier to figure out if the bonus continues, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, you know, if, with a one-time bonus might be some argument because you're going to say, look, I might make a base of 100000 and I got a $20,000 bonus and now I've got to pay spouses on the one twenty, and I won't make one twenty over the next year. So now I'm overpaying. Now I'm going to have problems paying my bills. Now there's an element of fairness that there's too much money going the one way as opposed to staying in my pocket. And can I afford what I want as far as a place to have my children have access or... Pay my bills. So, you know, those are the debates you're going to have about one time bonuses. But if it's a reoccurring bonus, mm-hmm. a little easier because you can say, look, um, if there's an expectation that maybe you get it, maybe you don't get it, we can deal with it by saying, okay, you're going to pay spousal on your base, your 100000 my example. When you get that $20,000 bonus, let's figure out what we do with it. Mm-hmm. So, kind of like right. an if and when. If right. you get it, we'll deal with it when you get it. Mm-hmm. And some people say, no, 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 I want. It's receive support on the 120. That's what they earned. That wouldn't be fair because if it's a bonus paid one day of the year, that person's $100,000 earner for 364 days of the year, and is $120,000 earner for one day of the year. To pay support on 120 for 365 days wouldn't be fair to them. So we have to look at that. I mean, I think I think one factor too is the size of the bonus. What I tell people is, is that if it's my example where it's 20% of your income, that can make a huge difference in your support payments. If it's 10% or 8% of your income, maybe it doesn't. If you're a salesperson and your commission is your big part of your income and you don't know what you're going to get and how that flows, that could be a huge part. There's people whose bases are 30000 and they get $140,000 in bonus based on their performance. Those people, you have to be very careful what you do because not only is there this ebb and flow to what they get um, and it's determined by performance, you have to give them some incentive to go out and earn right, it. Right. Because if I'm going to be a, I'm on the road 250 days of the year, 300 days of the year, pushing and pushing and pushing in sales, and I have to, at the end of the year, pay a lot of money to Revenue Canada and a lot of money to my spouse, I'm not going to take that job anymore. Now, you can say you're not going to impute them, but you can well, say okay, you're, maybe you're my bonus will I'm, I'm not going to
0: work overtime because I'm not... I'm only going to get 20% of it, mm-hmm. right?
1: No, that's the problem. Yeah. And, and that also could affect how much time they spend with their children. If there's children. Exactly. Why am I going to be in the row 300 days of the year and not see my kids just so I don't keep any of it? Right.
0: One practical approach we've done before, because it's such an expensive process, potentially dealing with these bonuses, is take a three-year rolling average. Mm-hmm. Say so that's fine. It was a one-off. We'll, we'll average it out over three years mm-hmm. and just put the next year into the rotation. Mm-hmm. So if there is a bump, you know, the person's not going to get uh, stung too harshly uh, to pay support on income he hasn't received. I, I, the scenario I'm thinking is they've received the bonus, they spent it during the course of the marriage, they separate, mm-hmm. and now he's paying based on that bonus again. Mm-hmm. So yes. this is one way to sort of add some fairness to it subject to review. Yeah, I think
1: you're looking at those facts though. I think people often want to do three averages even when those facts don't apply. Mm-hmm. But that's mean, true. You know, Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking at specific facts. Well, this
0: has been a great discussion. Um, I want to briefly touch upon appeals. We've talked about it briefly already. There's different courts that you go to for different orders. Interim orders and final orders go to different places. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Jason? Appeals could be a whole new discussion and a whole nother podcast. But uh, <laughs> what should people be mindful of if they want to appeal a support
1: order? Well, again, it depends if it's temporary. It depends if it's final. Um, if it's temporary, you're going to be appealing, I believe, to the same court. Um, if it's superior court of Ontario, well, should we get into the superior and the provincial courts?
0: No. Uh, <laughs> again, that's another podcast. But
1: <laughs> yeah, you may uh, need leave to appeal the to temporary order as well. Yes, mm-hmm. and so there's a whole process. I think predominantly done in writing, um, and uh, you know, there there's something that you would choose whether you want to do. They're not based on timing. If, you're looking at a temporary order and a trial coming up in a couple of months, I'm going to be with your while to right. do it. If you're looking at a temporary order and a lot of time before a trial and the ability to change it, you probably would want to do something about it.
2: You have to make sure if you want to appeal an order that, like Jason said, like there, it's a very rigid timeline. So if you get your final order and it's not something that um, you're happy with and you think that you have grounds to appeal and um, you should look into it right away because once the time elapses it gets harder and harder mm-hmm. to appeal.
0: We're seeing more and more decisions from the court appeal showing deference to uh, final orders if they're at trial or mm-hmm. if it's a consent order. You know, It depends on what type of order was made and if you agreed to it and now you're revoking your agreement that could be a different standard as well. We've talked about reviewing orders and built-in review periods. Generally speaking, um, you know, when the kids finish school, it seems like a logical point to review an order. Maybe upon retirement, maybe another logical point if mm-hmm. we've shared the pension through the property mm-hmm. division. Uh, it may be a, a double dip if the support order continues.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what are you seeing in terms of review orders that your clients are agreeing to?
2: Um, the clients are agreeing to so a lot of times clients will come in and they'll say well if she remarries or if she repartners I, I don't want to pay support to her if she's relying on someone else and or he so at that point you know we can build in a review period if the person cohabits with another individual in a relationship resembling marriage for three years at that point you would say that that's a material change in circumstances. And put that language
0: right into the Right order.
2: into the agreement and that would necessitate a review, not a change, but a review of spousal support. I guess support. the concept
0: goes back to where we started from. If it's mm-hmm. need and ability to pay, right, and you're a recipient repartnering, yep, your expenses may be shared, that's right. your new partner may have an yeah. income. so there's factors that come into play that didn't exist at the time the order
2: was absolutely and again that goes back to making sure that when you're in when when you're putting in your spousal support initially that you're, you're kind of turning your mind to is this compensatory is this a need and ability to pay it may become easier for you to review it if right in there you're you're providing that those facts so that um, a judge looking at it again says okay they already agree that this was a compensatory factor right. um, much easier to um, to navigate when you have that language your initial um, documents. It's
0: going to be easier for the judge or arbitrator who's doing the review to understand the that's factors right. they should be considering.
2: That's
0: right. Good tips, great stuff. Jason, life insurance, what should people be looking at?
1: Well, what the law says is, is that if someone has to pay support um, to another person, then the court can obligate them to maintain life insurance they have. Existing. And I, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's the key because mm-hmm. I, have, I have, I even counsel asked me at times, your client's life insurance is insufficient. If they died tomorrow, go out and get a million-dollar policy. If you have a
0: 60-year-old smoker <laughs> in bad health,
1: that may not be too easy. No, and, and, and that's not what the law says they should do either. Um, right. It's existing policy, and if that is insufficient, it's insufficient. The court doesn't say go out and get more. Mm-hmm. I mean, You're right. The payment for the insurance could be larger than the spouse's support payment, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you have an existing policy, and it's through employment, and it's through you know, not through employment. You went and got it. You've got to continue to, to cover it as long as it's reasonable. And as long as you have an obligation to support the person. Um, the idea is is that your support. We talked a lot about is based on your income. So unless you can somehow make income when you die, um, which would be a great trick, you have to protect that support payment if you do die. Right. And that's what life insurance does. So that's the concept. But. Is it meant to compensate for every dollar if you drop dead tomorrow? No, it isn't. It's meant to compensate as best as you can, which your existing policy is.
0: And on that note, a lot of separation agreements we enter into specifically say that the support obligations can be binding on the estate. Mm-hmm. If there's insufficient life insurance, the deceased payer's estate is going to be responsible.
1: And, and exactly, you also want to consider possibly that that number should reduce then for that reason, because if you separate and you've got a 20-year obligation coming at you, you don't want to have to secure funds in a life insurance policy for 20 years of payments when you're already 10 years into those payments. Right. You want the right to reduce what you have to protect and what your estate might That's be That's a great tip. If
0: you're in year 19, you don't have a $200,000 obligation no. anymore.
1: No, you can, you should be, you should try to build into agreements um, that you can actually review that amount periodically. Not every year, I mean that's not necessarily reasonable, but over some period of time.
0: Now, okay, so great discussion. We've got through entitlement, we've got through the SAGs. Nobody's appealed the order. We've got the incomes worked out. It only took us an hour and a half. Easy peasy. Nafisa, you have this court order. How are you going to enforce it? What are some of the things we, our listeners should be considering?
2: So usually court orders automatically are sent to um, a body called the Family Responsibility Office. It's a government body that enforces um, uh, support um, orders um, and they provide um, support to the recipients. So for example, if you have a court order and it says that the payer owes you spousal support in the amount of $1,000, it goes to the Family Responsibility Office automatically and the payer defaults in payments, you know, and it starts to add up and let's say at one point um, payer owes five thousand or six thousand, the Family Responsibility Office is a body that helps enforce that order. So they have certain mechanisms that are available to them. They can confiscate driver's license, they can um, take away passports, they can garnish wages. Um, and they can also even put you in jail if you're a support payer that's not paying uh, spousal support. Um, their last step is to actually um, get an order that uh, you you go to jail. So and the Family Responsibilities
0: Office, sometimes referred to as FRO, that's right. Again, a subject for an entirely
1: additional podcast. Also, <clears throat> yeah. um, with the, with the jail bit, um, there's a misconception. Uh, it's not jail or pay. It's jail yeah. and, and pay. pay. So
2: you're never really satisfying that obligation. So no, you no. can be jailed. I had a client.
1: I had
0: a client say Yeah, after thirty days, so it's great. well, you know, yeah, the money's still owing. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I had a client I
2: know. I know. going literally going back to jail every six months, like just because yeah. he couldn't afford it, and the the spousal support had accumulated. I think he owed something like four to five hundred thousand dollars in spousal mm-hmm. support, and. He was jailed every six months to a year, and nothing, it, it didn't reduce the, the 500000 or whatever that he owed. So um, it, and, it's. And
0: things go from bad to worse um, abs- yeah. for support payers who don't pay. If they suspend your driver's license and you need your driver's license to work, mm-hmm. you know, then you can potentially be facing highway traffic or criminal mm-hmm. sanctions for driving with the suspended driver's license. Mm-hmm. And things just really spiral out of control. Yes. The but you don't have to use Fro. You can yep. withdraw from Fro.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and we've seen clients do that. that though. Right. You know, people are like, "Hey, let's withdraw from Fro, and then I don't have to pay you at all." So the other person's got to agree. Both people have to agree. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and even from. when you withdraw, you can always go back in. So I mean, it's an option. Permit, yeah. Yes. Sorry. All right.
0: And uh, we've seen lots of clients who are very amicable. Mm-hmm. Here's my twelve posted of checks. Yeah. Uh, send them mm-hmm. off. If support's going to be adjusted each year because child support's in play, they just issue twelve new checks and mm-hmm. there's no issues at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's uh, e-transfers clients prefer, mm-hmm. which is great because you've got a electronic recording of the payment that's being made. However, you pay your support, it's mm-hmm. good to keep a trail in case there's a dispute
1: as to whether or not you paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on the practical side of things, what we, what I hear from my clients after the fact, and that's not things we get involved in, but. You know, child support collected by Fro is great. They do it all for you. Um, our spouse or spouse supports are another example here. But you know, you don't always get it on the same day of the month sometimes. Fro might right. collect it from the person on the first. We're dealing with the Someone's gotta hit a button right. to send it to you and it may not come on the uh, First, it might come on the eighth one month, the 12th next month, and the seventh of next month. And if someone's giving you post dated checks, you choose when you're going to use that money. That's Someone right. gets electronic transfers. If it says the first of the month and that's when the person pays it to FRO, you will get it instead of waiting for FRO to get it. Sometimes my clients have had to call FRO and say, I'm, I don't have my money yet. Someone hits a couple of buttons and it's there the next second. And so it would be that, that crazy.
0: The clients who pay with post dates, I've had clients who've had uh, you know, cars break down or whatever. They phone their spouse and say, hold the check for a week. Uh, which is no problem. So mm-hmm. there you can be very practical in terms of paying the support if you can if get you, along if you get along right? keywords <laughs> Just thinking of this scenario as we're sitting here. Let's just say we have support that's paid pursuant to a separation agreement after um, The parties have settled their affairs, and they're no longer living together And you don't do anything about it the supports not paid You sit on your hands How you know three four years later? How do we approach those cases where there was an obligation to pay support,
1: it wasn't fulfilled, but no steps were taken to fulfill it? Some people have you've got to get off your hands. You got to do it. You got to chase it down. If you don't chase it down, you might have some problems with that. As far as going back as far as you want to, if it's like a long period of time, you might be out of pocket for. You may never get those monies. It may, the court may want some explanation. For the delay. court
2: would want to know why, why haven't you, I mean, there's a, there's a separation agreement that's an obligation for spousal support that flows from that separation agreement. The court would want to know, what are the reasons that spousal support wasn't paid? Why didn't you enforce it? Why didn't you ask for it, right? So there, there's a bit of question, there's a little bit of fact finding there in terms of the reasoning as to why that spousal support wasn't provided. If you can show a trail where there's emails back and forth and recipient says, hey, don't worry about it. Um, you know, whatever you're going through, let's say health concerns, for example, um, that's a fact that would be um, considered.
0: This is, yeah, you're exactly right. Conduct could become relevant for unpaid Mm -hmm. support orders. Mm -hmm. If there's blameworthy conduct uh, with respect to the support Mm -hmm. payer, you know, if they were obligated to report Mm -hmm. an increase in income Mm -hmm. and didn't, and didn't pay their support, Mm I think the court might take a different approach to that than mm-hmm. if it's just somebody who never pursued it.
2: They also look at prejudicial effect, right? right. So I mean, if, if, if all of a sudden the spousal support that's owing is $150,000, um, the payer has the children, Um, what is the prejudicial effect of having um, this person now have to pay that lump sum to the other spouse so there are factors in considering uh, that the courts consider for retroactive payments but again it's really important for uh, for both parties to really follow um, their agreements because those are binding documents.
0: That's a great tip I think the takeaway here is don't delay Mm -hmm. if you're missing support for the payer or recipient um, get on it, mm-hmm. follow through if you're receiving the payment, if you're supposed to be paying, make some kind of arrangements to mm-hmm. get it paid, because the retroactive effect of enforcement can mm-hmm. be significant. I mean, right.
1: Further, what you were saying earlier, if you lose your job, if you get injured, mm-hmm. if you get sick, and you want to adjust that payment, you retire, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. want to re- reduce it or terminate it, um, to bring it to zero, um, you should put your spouse on notice that you've mm-hmm. had that change. Right. Say so to them, I lost my job. I continue paying you the number I'm supposed to, but I'm letting you know that I'll probably be reviewing it. The spouse can keep the money, but they might have to get some of it back at some point. You might have to make a retroactive adjustment, an accounting of what might have been overpaid. And not always, but I'm saying that's, that's a good way to protect what you're paying if you mm-hmm. think that. You're, you're paying too much because of your change in circumstances. And if
0: you're caught up in FRO and you have an agreement, you can file a new agreement with the Family Responsibility Office mm-hmm. so you don't lose your driver's license. You don't get your wages garnished at 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's no agreement, FRO's not going to help you. They're going to say, you need to bring a motion to change and get a new court order in place.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, think of them this way. They're, they're a collection agency. Um, they don't play judge and jury, they play right. executioner. So if you <laughs> want to change your number and you've got the saddest story in the world, they don't care. They have to collect the number in the order agreement. If you want a different number, you've got to get a different order or a different agreement. Exactly. And that's all they'll do. They will not play judge or jury and go, that's the saddest story I've ever heard on reducing your payment by $1,000 right. a month. They
2: don't have the authority right No, they don't.
0: So, so if you're injured, you lose your job, you're in you're in collection with Fro and you're paying support, bring a motion to change, get mm-hmm. your new evidence before the court, ask the judge to make a new order.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Be proactive.
0: Well, we've covered a lot this afternoon. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, let's get to closing comments. Uh, we're specifically talking about spousal support here. For our listeners or colleagues, you want to start, Fisa. what takeaways or closing comments would you have?
2: Spousal support is one of the most difficult areas in family law. In understanding entitlements, understanding obligations, understanding um, the SAGs, all of that—it's—it's it's quite complicated even for the lawyers. So, if you have uh, as a potential uh, issue, either re- receiving spousal support or um, you're a payer, it needs—you should get some legal advice. I mean. Um, you don't want to bind yourself to a, a, an agreement that um, it'll be difficult to review. Um, just get the numbers right and, and understand what it is that you're agreeing to. Um, I think that's important. But again, it, it's, it's a difficult area because it's hard to to sort of pinpoint this is exactly what you're going to pay. A lot of times it, it really depends on <clears throat> who, you, who, who you're in front of, for example, if you're in court. So right. Great it's a difficult tip. area. Yeah.
1: Jason? I think you know there's an old saying that says uh, what the um, town that can't does enough work for one lawyer has more than enough for two and, and the, what that means is is that you know two lawyers will fight and people will want to fight and they'll want uh, uh, to be right and win and and I think this podcast uh, goes right against that because look this is an area of law that is complicated and even if you guys agree spousal should be paid you still might have uh, a benefit to getting advice from a lawyer about what should be paid, how long, what review mechanism. This is a lot of what we do for people. So my point is, is that even when you agree on stuff, uh, there's enough like, work for lawyers to do when people aren't going to fight. Because there's these little things where like, I don't understand any of this. Explain to me. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? This has nothing to do with fighting. This has to do with just making sure that you both are getting what you're interested in getting and uh, you're getting the advice to understand that you can or can't get that.
0: That's a great tip, Jason. Thank you. You know, we ran only two scenarios as examples today. Same income, same ages, one with kids, one without. And we've had a really good discussion of the variables that go into that specific scenario. There's online support calculators out there. They're good as a reference. I certainly wouldn't rely on them given the number of factors that we talked about today. I always try to plug collaborative practice. We've talked about court procedure and um, a lot about what happens in court with orders and support. It's important to be mindful that if you proceed collaboratively, you can bring a team in. We can get a financial professional to help us understand the income, if it's a small business owner or a complicated income scenario, maybe splitting income. There could be uh, legacy issues with respect to family companies. But there's lots of opportunities to resolve spousal support outside of the court system using professionals that's going to come up with the correct result. And we talk about fairness. uh, Mm -hmm. Fairness, what may be fairness to the support pair may be different to what the recipient Mm -hmm. thinks is fair. Oftentimes in collaborative practice, we look for a result that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. You can see the goalposts here are quite wide in terms of the ranges of support. So we would strongly encourage you to get legal advice, take a look at alternatives to resolution outside of the court system, still engage your legal team. Spousal support is too important just to do in terms of a kitchen table agreement Mm -hmm. or some type of agreement you get off the internet, which may or may not be enforceable. So I want to thank our listeners. This has been a long podcast, but it's been very insightful, and I think it's a very important subject matter. I want to thank our guests for joining me today. Um, Stay tuned, and thank you for listening to Family Law Now.